Hello friends, welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today I talk with Dr. Darian Lockett, who teaches at Biola University. We talk about two of his recent books on canon formation and the Catholic epistles, some of the theological themes that show up in these letters, and the strategic significance of a canonical approach in the life of the believer. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome, Darian. Thanks for being here. Today we're going to discuss some of your recent work in the Catholic epistles and New Testament canon studies. But first, could you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us uh, some of what you do and teach at Biola? Yeah, Chad, great to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, I, yeah, I have uh, my wife and I, we have three kids, uh, three adult kids. Uh, two of them are here at Biola where I teach and the other one is graduated and uh, my wife and I were originally from the Midwest, so we both grew up outside of Kansas City, but we've been living here in uh, California since 2007 um, and have been here at Biola teaching uh, New Testament to undergraduate students in our Bible and theology program here since 2007 and have enjoyed that uh, very much. My area is uh, New Testament, but then a sub-discipline of New Testament, uh, I would call the Catholic epistles or the general letters, that's James through Jude. Um, really delighted to be on the faculty here. We have a large enough faculty that we have folks who are specialists in the Gospels or in Paul uh, or in Hebrews or Revelation, or in my case, James through Jude. So I actually have space to uh, teach a class in this area and also continue to to read and think and uh, write about this area. So that's great. The, the other thing is uh, we're very involved in our local church. I'm an elder and um, I'm actually moving through ordination now. I've, I've been ordained Southern Baptist, but I'm changing that ordination to the PCA. And so we've uh, been been really involved in our church, both in leadership and preaching. And, uh, and that's been a joy. Okay, great, wonderful. Um, just as a follow-up, since we're going to be talking about uh, canon studies, uh, what would you say, how did you become interested specifically in canon studies? I don't think I've, we've talked about this before, uh, just generally, uh, but uh, or also like uh, either canon studies directly or a canonical approach to biblical studies. Was this always an interest as you started, started out, or was it uh, a gradual shift in approach, or how would you characterize kind of your interest in this, uh, the area of canon studies? Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't talked about this before, but maybe unsurprisingly, no, it wasn't on my mind from the beginning. In fact, I didn't really even know uh, what this was uh, until I was exposed to a seminar in my uh, PhD studies at St. Andrews uh, called Scripture and Theology. It was a Scripture and Theology seminar that lived at St. Andrews for about a decade uh, and even had some outside folks come in and some some volumes were published in the scripture and hermeneutics kind of series uh, published in the U.S. at least by Zondervan. But um, in that seminar, uh, Chris Seitz would talk about the Old Testament's per se voice and that always kind of I didn't know what he meant by that. Mm -hmm. uh, and he invited Brevard Childs to come and speak to this uh, seminar. And, and that that was my first introduction to hadn't hadn't read anything that Charles had written at that time um, and was introduced to him as he came and, and spoke to our seminar and shared some of his work at the time on Isaiah. But uh, that was 
an eye-opening uh, vantage point onto what I would call biblical theology. I'm always interested in how scripture interprets scripture, always interested in, as a Christian, in how the Bible tells the one story of, of God. But the canonical approach to this, to see how, for example, the, you know, the, 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 the Torah interacts with the prophets or how the gospels interact with Paul's letters or, or, or why we might talk about a, uh, you know, a gospel collection, why Luke wouldn't be read alongside of Acts necessarily, but alongside the other gospels. Uh, it was, it was uh, interacting there a little bit with uh, Childs that introduced me to this. And, and then it just became fascinating to me how mm-hmm. canonical insights help, think, help us think about how the Bible is connected. So the connection to biblical theology, and then a subset of that, how these letters I'm interested in, uh, these seven letters by four different authors, why are they together? Why are they classified together? And uh, so canonical approach uh, was a very helpful way of asking that question. And so it kind of brought these two interests together, an interest in how the Bible is a whole story. And then these letters that I'm interested in, it seemed that a canonical approach is, is a way of uh, bringing those two interests together. So that, that's kind of how it started. Yeah, that's how, that's a helpful uh, way to position that as well, thinking about, because uh, sometimes there's the definitional question that bedevils lots of our discussions of what, what, it, what is it that we mean when we talk about canon studies or canonical approach. But the way you kind of discussed it in moving from uh, a deep study of these uh, this literature but also thinking about the way that it became collected. A canonical approach is not necessarily a total break from, you know, a different way of doing biblical studies, but it's asking a different set of questions, uh, dealing with some of the same material um, and not rejecting uh, huge parts of even something like historical criticism or grammatical historical, but asking a different set of questions about that evidence and those methods. Right. And that's precisely what I found so compelling about Childs is that he, uh, you know, in his scholarship published, of course, but also in his presentation with us, uh, well versed in the historical criticism of the text. I mean, fully engaged with German higher critics and thinking about these assumptions or these uh, critical or scholarly kind of uh, methodological assumptions, uh, engaging with them full on, while at the same time uh, not being afraid at all to ask what I recognized as deeply Christian questions. How mm-hmm. how are all of these texts related to each other? Now, he wouldn't talk overtly about God's, uh, you know, the divine authorship, though he would re- reference that, or, or providence, you know, being... Uh, a means to describe how these texts are connected to each other, but just lying under the surface and just about everything Childs does are, you know, these these kind of, um, I don't want to say assumptions, but it, it's there. It's there for the one who's looking for it, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put things into Childs' work, but I just recognize those as a Christian. I recognize those as deeply uh, uh, Christian theological concerns that are being taken seriously, yet taken up and engaged with uh, a full kind of historical critical uh, methodology and a child's ability to broker those two things was always mm-hmm. really interesting to me um, and 
and I hope in my own work that I'm 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 trying to do those two things uh, as well, uh, and the canonical approach then just being a way of describing the phenomena of how how these disparate texts, these different historical texts, uh, we can describe them historically in their different situations, at least uh, how how we understand them being brought together. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the definitional problem is always there, and we can talk about definition and such, but really the rubber meets the road in how we read and how maybe this approach helps us describe uh, or helps us see really meaningful connections between texts. And then um, as we step back, it's almost like the pieces of a mosaic begin to mm -hmm. air out a big picture. And boy, that big picture really matters that we get it right, as it were, again, right. on the Christian theological side. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So as you're thinking about your uh, your area of, of research, but also what you've been publishing in, and I was just going to think about some of your works as I was I was looking through these and was reading these uh, in the last several years. Uh, in 2012, you published an introduction to the Catholic Epistles with TNT Clark that surveys many of the critical issues and theological content of this section of the New Testament. And then in 2016, you published a book called Letters from the Pillar Apostles that discussed the formation of the canon, uh, the Catholic epistles as a canonical unit. And then your most recent book with IVP is called Letters for the Church, reading James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 3rd John, and Jude as canon. Um, so as you're thinking about, you know, your recent, uh, this series of books, uh, what are you what are you up to here in this last book and how do you see like what you're doing here in relation to uh, some of these earlier works yeah thanks for the question uh, as you <clears throat> as you ask that question it just sounds like i keep writing the same book over and over again right <laughs> i'm a i'm a one trick pony man yeah uh, this is the one thing that i think about and uh, attempt to know something about as a student of these letters but uh, there's a little method in the madness. So the first book was uh, uh, a series, a part of a series in TNT Clark approaches to biblical studies, and so I wasn't able to write about first, second, and third John. Those texts were uh, in another book, and the idea was to introduce not only the theology and content, but also these critical approaches, uh, new methodological approaches in this area which that's kind of a, a niche area. Um, the other two books then are are much more connected to each other. The first one, a more academic monograph, like you said, talking about the historical development uh, uh, we see in the manuscripts, early church uh, uh, canon lists. We see the development of the Catholic epistles. Um, and then uh, the, the last book here really is taking some of the insights from that academic book, the Pillar Apostle book, and uh, applying it to a, a more general uh, readership. It's, it's less an academic monograph and more a hybrid book. Uh, it's doing one thing. It's basically a, a, a really um, a quick commentary, as it were. It's like a commentary, not on every word or every verse, but it's a thought by thought commentary, kind of tracing the flow of thought through each of these letters. So that's one thing the book is doing, the Letters for the Church book is doing. But all the way through, I'm trying to put my finger on these interconnections that you can trace through all seven letters. And that's some of the insights that are coming from that more academic monograph. 
Um, when we read these seven letters together, what do we begin noticing? We see things like the love command and an engagement with Leviticus 19 popping up through these letters pretty consistently, or uh, a contrast between uh, loyalty to the world and loyalty to God as being antithetical kind of loyalties. Um, these issues pop up elsewhere in the New Testament, but mm-hmm. they uh, there's something unique or particular about the Catholic epistles as you see those um, themes coming together. So really in this in this last book, I'm hoping to uh, help maybe, you know, readers rediscover these letters because in comparison to the Gospels or Paul, uh, James through Jude are a set of letters that maybe people haven't thought much about. And I think there's mm-hmm. a ton of great theological insight, but also really practical pastoral concern that flows out of these texts, especially issues of suffering, uh, issues of faith and works being related to each other. Those are just real treasures to mm. uh, to help, you know, the church or readers to re-engage. But then to see, yeah, these letters hang together. They they have some central themes that uh, pull them together. So that that's kind of what I'm trying to accomplish in the book um, for, for a, a broader audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful because uh, as I was reading uh, when I first read your uh, intro, TNT Clark intro, you uh, mentioned the uh, Catholic epistles as a unit, but only briefly uh, in a small section. And then your your next book, that was what the book was about, um, just making the argument. What would that look like to make the argument from the reception history, from the text themselves, thinking about both canonization and composition and then what i one of the things i really liked about this your most recent volume is um you're not overly polemical in the sense of making the argument for the catholic epistles as a coherent collection but you're presenting um and engaging with the the meaning and theology the flow of their thought um, with that in mind, so that if someone cuts their teeth on these books with a resource like this, that um, the idea that there would be some sort of uh, connection between these works would not be a something that needs to be like argued for as a new thought, mm-hmm. uh, a totally foreign way of thinking about these books, but it would be it would be something that you can see as the as as the uh, the message of these books unfolds. Um, yeah, so I absolutely. thought that was, that was helpful. Well, and I'm sorry to cut you off there, but that oh, no, excites no. me that you see that. That's exactly what I was hoping would happen in the book, basically to have uh, a, somebody has my book open, but really they have their Bible open and they're reading James and First Peter and Second Peter and First John. And, and the book is just kind of like a trail guide trying to say, hey, as you're walking through this path of these texts, look over to your right and see mm-hmm. this connection. Or look over there. Uh, you just read this. And James, don't forget, hey, there's a theme to to, to be reminded of because it's right there. And um, uh, yeah, if, if, if others have that same uh, uh, experience, I'd be very, very excited mm-hmm. because like I said, to to inductively or just kind of bump into, oh, look at these connections. As I study these texts, the more and more I see these interconnections and these similar themes that Mm -hmm. that's a win, you know, because if people are walking away with the academic argument in their mind that, uh, you know, that's one thing, but man, if they walk away having 
really engage these texts and are moved, especially in a Christian way, moved, mm-hmm. moved to see the beauty of Jesus in his suffering uh, and what that leads me to uh, to do in my own life, to follow him courageously, even if it means into suffering. Or if I see in James the call to wholeness uh, against double-mindedness, to live a whole mm-hmm. life, and that means something about how I use my tongue. It means something about how uh, faith and works go together. Uh, in seeing these themes then process through uh, enduring trials, you know, process through all these letters, then that, well, that's exciting because that, that mm-hmm. leads to faithful living. You mentioned, you know, as you're reading through one book, you, you kind of see over your shoulder uh, those same themes developed in a different book. And thinking about a work or a resource that is, you know, a contemporary one, pulling these things together and treating them in a single in a single work. You know, there's uh, studies today about just the semiotic effect of like you know, museums and it, these exhibits. Uh, the way that they're structured kind of influences how they're seen. It's almost like you put together here, you walk into a room in a uh, a, a museum or something like that, and these are the books that are there. And so you're you're looking through, uh, beholding something in 2 Peter, and then you see right next to it uh, 1 Peter. So even on the, the, the broad level of bringing these particular books together and studying them together has that effect. Uh, mm-hmm. Even as you, even if you're not able to demonstrate some sort of uh, compositional link uh, right. at a at a fundamental level, seeing the value of uh, reading them as dialogue partners, while also pointing out some strategic moments of of possibly I- intentional interconnection. Uh, one of the limitations or the difficulties of seeing the Catholic epistles as a unit for you know, the typical church goer or pastor or scholar even is the types of resources and constraints that are there in publishing, for example. So even you mentioned your first book, uh, the 2012 one, because of the nature of the series, uh, the Johannine epistles are treated with another work or as I'm thinking about like one of our courses here is NT2, which is Acts and then James through Jude. So trying to find a book that includes just those texts um, is, is sometimes difficult. Uh, so Sides yeah. talks about this when he's talking about the shift in the discipline to seeing Isaiah as a uh, compositional whole, uh, that you know, even trying to write a commentary on the whole book of Isaiah, you know, he, yeah. he wrote a commentary from that perspective, but he had to do the first part of Isaiah, and then the, his second p- treatment of uh, the second part of Isaiah is in a different series just because of the constraints of the discipline. Um, and so sometimes it's difficult to work within uh, the constraints of uh, either publishing or just the way that things always have been for the last, you know, uh, recent history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'm I'm feeling the pinch of the very thing you're talking about in a project I'm working on right now, which is a a revision of a commentary on Jude into Peter. Mm. Uh, so uh, most commentaries take up Jude along with Second Peter, um, almost if almost as if Second Peter should be a, called Second Jude instead mm-hmm. of Second Peter. Why? Well, because some some critical 
conclusions about how Jude and Second Peter are related literarily, and those are really important uh, insights to observe. But the knock-on effect is that a commentary is not going to have a commentary on the two Petrine epistles, First Peter and Second right. Peter, though you'll see older commentaries do that. Mm -hmm. uh, the scholarly assumptions that lead to two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs, as it might be, uh, lead to yeah, seeing James, uh, sorry, seeing Jude and Second Peter together in the same uh, commentary. And then I feel there's a bit of whiplash between the church and the academy here, because I think in some churchly context, there's just a, what's the big deal? We'll read First and Second Peter together. They both have Peter. Uh, right. in their title, right? So would, shouldn't shouldn't we, you know, kind of take the hint that these two uh, texts are named next to each other and, and maybe we should read them both as from Peter, but in the scholarly world, of course, well-known concerns about authorship of Second Peter realign some of these associations. <clears throat> and even that, that observation there that you're making, uh, Ched, is interesting to me because from a canonical perspective, this is just evidence that we always read in association. Uh, right. it's who gets to call the shots as to the association. Um, we're, we're in a scholarly way, we're encouraged to read uh, Jude and Second Peter together in a particular association. Their right. canonical arrangement has them, you know, associated between First Peter and Second Peter. Uh, notice either way, you're going to read a text in association with another. And I like your example of the museum. Um, and and I was thinking, well, the role I feel like I play is the museum docent, right? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm just finding these texts associated in the room. I'm just the docent who wants to come in and say, hey, let me help you see some reasons for why these texts are in this room presented together. Right. Uh, this is something we've inherited largely. Again, here's where the analogy breaks down, but it's a museum that's been around for a couple thousand years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and I'm just the latest docent to come along and try to learn the logic of why these texts were originally put in this room together. And you're right th that I, I, there is a, a, a notion in which, well, the authors themselves didn't put these texts in this room. Someone else in the museum did that. Um, and part of my job as a docent is to say, well, we, we know a little bit about that process. We don't know mm -hmm. the names of the people who did that, but we know a little bit about the process that brought about this association. Whereas at the same time, I'm curious, are there indications that the authors themselves um, in any way, shape, or form understood that their texts would be read as larger scripture or alongside at least the Old Testament. And frankly, Ched, your work here, I've learned a bunch from, uh, both in your dissertation and in your, you know, biblical theology work. But, uh, you know, thinking about how authors would have a canonical consciousness, at mm -hmm. least when thinking about the Old Testament, right? You know, Peter right. wants his text to be read alongside the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament left and right. And understanding his, you know, writing here as being at least in continuity with um, uh, those Old Testament texts. Interesting to ask the harder question, though. Does Peter mm -hmm. think James, you know, has an association with his text? I think that's much harder to prove and, right. and less likely. But in the history of reception, yeah, these texts were received together. And that right. tells us something.
I like your kind of uh, furthering the analogy, this thousand year, 2000 year old uh, museum that's still in business. You know, we have to stretch our metaphor here, uh, but that's kind of part of what, you know, at, at a minimum, that's kind of what your work is trying to establish uh, that as a reader of the Catholic epistles as a canonical unit, you're not acting as a uh, creative, innovative curator, but trying to uncover an ancient uh, curation that's already happened and saying, okay, you know, asking the why question, but also just asking the question about what do we see when we look at it in this way? Um, yeah. So like the mere contextuality point of what impact does it make reading these together, um, even if we're not able to ask that question about, you know, mint contextuality uh, in those in those in those settings. One of the concepts you've used uh, in a few articles uh, that I've found really helpful to kind of charge my thinking on this, as well as thinking about the canonical context. And you've mentioned it a second ago that we are going to contextualize these writings and you know receive them and, and associate them, uh, but seeing the canonical context as an authoritative recontextualization. So it's dealing with the insight. Yes, these a canonical collection is a recontextualization to some degree, uh, but then thinking about what is the nature of that recontextualization within a collection. Yeah, yeah. The curator, uh, your you know metaphor you're using there. Uh, uh, I would say that there was a moment of bringing text together and the curator doing that is an apostolic, or at least it's in the apostolic era. It's mm -hmm. in the uh, first, um, you know, hundred years of Christian tradition. So um, uh, this guy named Marcus Bachmuel has talked a lot about reception history, and he made an argument that there's apostolic memory still alive up until the death of Irenaeus in about 180. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it, that doesn't mean Irenaeus was an apostle. Uh, it just means that Irenaeus uh, interacted with people who in turn interacted with the apostles. Mm -hmm. And therefore there was live apostolic memory uh, up and running until about 180. And uh, I'm quite interested in, it's in this period of time that the New Testament gains these associations and therefore mm -hmm like he just mentioned, that's a that's a special set of associations. It's not me being creative, uh, the reformers being creative, or even the medieval theologians being creative uh, with the text. It's more to look at how the texts were received in this really important moment. And mm -hmm. um, maybe a podcast is not the place to think about this, but right. uh, I've, I, I've been intrigued with, you know, do we call that inspired? Uh, in, usually in evangelical Christianity, inspiration is something that is reserved for writing. It's when the right. original apostolic authors are inspired by the spirit to write the words that they wrote. Uh, and of course, illumination is a, a way theologically to describe the spirit's work in interpretation. When, when human beings are reading uh, and interpreting text, the spirit guides this process and we'd call that illumination. So what about this canonization? That's something slightly less than authoring or writing, but it's certainly more than just interpreting. Mm -hmm. uh, and so anyway, I've, I've, I've struggled to, to describe that space 
and the spirit's work or the divine work of God in that. But I'm, uh, yeah, I'm I'm toying with the idea of saying that this canonical, uh, these canonical insights are are ones we ought to look at. They're hermeneutically significant. They help us understand meaning, uh, and it's there's kind of a special. Uh, special sense in which these texts have been brought together uh, providentially. God is providentially ordering this reception of these texts. Um, That might sound a little heavy handed. I don't know how you would respond to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm interested in pushback there, but um, yeah, it's, it's a special curation. It's not just a reader response kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, at the very least we can talk about the, that this uh, coming together, these associations are happening uh, embedded within the early reception of the uh, of the biblical texts. Um, so thinking about uh, that this isn't something that is uh, arbitrary, but is happening uh, within the life of the churches. And it's also flowing from the texts themselves. So it's not uh, even in this special kind of apostolic memory moment these readers are reading the text and seeing things embedded in the texts themselves. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but just oh, no, yeah. child's talks like this. It's not a foreign external influence on the texts. Instead, it's an observation of things that are deeply happening in the, as it were, the warp and woof of the texts themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, it's not an imposition uh, that's happening in this early moment. Yeah, I think that recognition helps as we're thinking about the uh, viability or the legitimacy of just at the at the very least taking some of these canonical uh, context realities into account. Uh, You've also used the distinction between uh, the church's canon and the scholar's Mm -hmm. canon, just making that point of we are going to associate these writings in our analysis. It's just uh, part of what we do to kind of get a handle on what's going on. Um, and then just recognizing the um, canonical context as that, uh, at, at the very least, noting the the difference sometimes between uh, a historical critical or even just a generally uh, historical approach to the New Testament, which might put Second Peter and Jude side by side versus and then distance uh, intentionally First and Second Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think that's a helpful distinction that you make um, as well. Yeah, and I've got to give credit where credit's due there. So Dave Neenhouse, he's a New Testament scholar at Seattle Pacific uh, University, and he he used that analogy once, and that that was profound for me. So I've actually used it a couple of times, but want to give credit to him that that contrast between the church's canon and scholars canon so it, it it it's an illustration of both collection and association. So the the scholars canon might say something about collection. So maybe the Gospel of Thomas has something more to tell us about the historical Jesus than the Gospel of John. So that's a collection issue. What what gets in your purview to to look at? Or another one that I uh, wrestle with in thinking about uh, to Peter and Jude is uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, uh, which sometimes people argue was written uh, you know, Second Peter is using uh, the Apocalypse of Peter. So again, that's a, an issue of collection: which texts mm-hmm. get in, which texts are excluded. And again, and as Christians, this is a deeply Christian concern. We we're arguing for an exclusive canon. These twenty-seven texts of the New Testament, mm-hmm. 
these 66 texts of the scriptures, not other texts. Uh, and when we read them as a collection, there is association between them and the association to Peter Jude or the association Luke Acts, some of the things we've already been talking about. So yeah, whether whether the scholars canon or the, the church's canon, there, there are collection and association issues that are gonna drive or influence our hermeneutics. I'm arguing, right. let's let that be the early church. Let's let that be uh, more clearly, overtly Christian theological mm -hmm. concerns uh, influencing or informing the collection and arrangement association. Yeah. Circling back around to thinking about uh, reading James through Jude together, like when you were working on your um, uh, your, your recent works, I always like to ask this question uh, to students too, uh, when they're, it kind of catches them off guard sometimes when they're, uh, the idea of having a favorite insight uh, when you are working on a uh, project you're trying to turn in. But like when you're working on these works in particular, doing this decades long thought experiment of thinking about the Catholic epistles as a canonically coherent unit, what are some favorite insights or surprising discoveries uh, that you you made in terms of maybe a, a theological theme or a textual connection or a, a things that jump out like a favorite insight or a surprising discovery? Yeah, two, uh, two things come to mind here. One, a favorite insight. I might uh, flip the idea of favorite uh, to haunting. How about a haunting <laughs> insight? Uh, oh, that's good. So James always was a text that uh, challenged me. I had done some mission work in Eastern Europe and uh, 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 Belarus, interestingly enough. Um, uh, Belarus and Ukraine are in the news just now. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I was in a small town called Maladechna in uh, in central Belarus, uh, uh, preaching the gospel as a young teenager. And um, at the end of this moment of preaching, this 70-year-old uh, woman through a translator asked me, young man, I have one question for you. What about the suffering? Uh, and I remember thinking this this woman has probably lived as a Christian in, you know, through Soviet communism uh, and now into this new era of Russian and now Belarusian independence. And I just thought, I have no answer for you. I don't know anything about suffering. And it was James that drew me in thinking about considering it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds for the trying of your faith works endurance and endurance when it has its perfect work in you uh, leads to wholeness right uh, maturity complete lacking in nothing mm -hmm. um you know reading first peter you've got suffering all over uh here peter is talking to wives and slaves who are in precarious social situations where they suffer suffer in front of a watching world for the sake of witness but mm -hmm. suffer like jesus suffered if he is the prophesied one who will experience suffering, he'll also receive and experience glory. So we we suffer with him now, and we will see and experience the glory with him when he's revealed. But Second Peter has this in, in view as well, and this is more particularly in, in the false situation of false teaching, when you have people challenging the if one's faith in christ uh, saying look you know nothing has changed everything stayed the same god's judgment is not coming i don't need to live in light of knowing god will be the ultimate judge and the kind of implicit 
um, resistance toward Christian life that that represents, or the kind of antichrists that show up in 1 John, or the intruders that show up in Jude. These are, these are you know, examples of resisting the Christian community or exploiting the Christian community, fractures within it. Uh, all of them are, are ways of enduring trial. And it's haunting because I, I don't want to suffer. Um, but the kind of Christianity I see on offer in the West often is a kind of Christianity that makes your life better, that gives you blessings, that, that can be deeply misunderstood, you know, deeply misunderstand the kind of uh, uh the kind of thing that God does in in and through suffering, the suffering of His Son, uh, and the suffering that we as followers of Jesus uh, in, encounter. Now, of course, Jesus suffers vicariously; He suffers salvifically for others. But we are welcomed into that life of trial and endurance. And mm -hmm. and so th this might sound like a downer. The thing that haunts me is this: that uh, uh, Christians. Christians are the ones that are able to look at suffering and understand its meaning. It's not meaningless. It's mm -hmm. not absurd. It's not absurd. Why? Because God is able to bring something out of suffering that is for his own glory and for our good. Uh, now, this is not antithetical to Paul. I think 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul is saying similar things there. But in the Catholic epistles especially, this is a haunting kind of discovery that seems so pervasive. Mm that our suffering is for our wholeness, our suffering and trial is for witness. It's for the peace and purity of the church. Uh, and it's it, it very much what we're called to. So that's like, that's a haunting insight. I wish mm -hmm. I could get out from under it, man. I just want to know when the yeah. suffering is over. Yeah. But the Catholic epistles teach me that instead of that, I should wait patiently within it and say, Lord, what are you accomplishing in me? What enduring faith are you building in me? What what witness can this uh, project or or communicate to a mm -hmm. wide world? Um, so yeah, haunting because I just I teach these texts all the time and I never feel like I'm actually living that insight. Right, but it's there. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a that's well, a haunting insight. I've I've got yeah. one that's also an interesting kind of connection. So the idea of diaspora. Uh, mm -hmm. The word diaspora only appears three times in the New Testament, once in First Peter and then once in James. And um, I'm still working on this and not quite sure if I've got this right academically or not. But like canonically, uh, diaspora, two letters sent to those in the diaspora next to each other, uh, surely are among a number of things that draw, especially James and First Peter together. Mm -hmm. But I've thought a lot about how diaspora for James is a geographic category. Uh, Israel, the 12 tribes, uh, often because of covenant infidelity, have been exiled from their homeland. And so diaspora is a way of geographically marking Israel as out of place. You're not where you should be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a lot of what James is you know, communicating to people who should know uh, who need to actually repent. That's that's a lot of what James is doing. So there's a kind of geographical, geographical, theological diaspora going on in James. But in Peter, uh, 
Peter's talking to a group of Gentile Christians, and he's saying things like, during your time of alienation, during your time of sojourning here, you know, make sure your life uh, uh, looks a certain way, right? You're following Christ and even in sufferings. So the diaspora in First Peter is kind of a chronological or a temporal, a temporal diaspora. Mm -hmm. It's while you are here in your home away from home, uh, in the home you're now slightly alienated from because of your loyalty to Jesus, live in a certain way as temporal exiles. So mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of fascinated with how uh, a wide angle lens to see the Catholic epistles might help us see diaspora both in geographical uh, and uh, temporal uh, realms uh, where, where we can say the Christian life is a kind of geographic diaspora or a mm -hmm. diaspora. So those are half-baked thoughts, but that's one that keeps... Uh, you know, percolating in my mind as, a, as an unexpected insight that comes from mm -hmm. looking at all these letters together. There, there are more, but those two. Yeah, sure. Wow, th those are great. Uh, you know, I don't know what I thought you were going to say, something like, oh, I found a manuscript or something. Uh, but like, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> those, those are like really uh, helpful, weighty things um, as you're thinking about just that you said haunting. I think I agree with that. This idea of the question, what about the suffering? Do these scriptures speak to the the, the wounds of real uh, real life suffering? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, the the concept of both both angles on exile. The uh, readers of these texts, uh, many of them will be displaced from their homes, and then they will. Uh, many readers of this text, these texts will be suffering and um, or if they're not need to uh, think in, in those terms as well. Um, one of my favorite Rich Mullen songs uh, says something like, if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. And it's almost like the Catholic epistles uh, help us in that that regard. Uh, also, as we're, we're reading them, you know, if I read, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. Uh, so thinking about the way that these texts not only inform uh, individual experiences, but as, as you're saying as well, together give us um, a whole different orientation yeah. um, to not only reading the New Testament, but also um, receiving receiving them, uh, these texts and the, the, the message of these texts. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned Rich Mullins. He's a good Kansas guy. He's oh, from Wichita. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. And, and I know the song that you're talking about well. That's such a great line. I'm so glad you remind me of it. It's been a long time since I've thought of that song. And uh, I was struck on that note, uh, teaching the Catholic epistles during pan pandemic. You know, mm. uh, there's oh, a kind great. of digital exile that we experience, at least here in my institution. We were online for entire year and our local church uh, my local church we weren't able to meet together uh, again for about a year and for me in my local church context that meant we were not going to experience communion mm -hmm. because we weren't able to have one loaf one community in person and that kind of it was striking to teach the catholic epistles during pandemic uh, because mm -hmm. it they so clearly uh, addressed this trial this suffering this exile 
that we were experiencing in a really unique way, though all of us experiencing so so very relevant to speak to those uh, experiences as God's word does. It speaks to our right. uh, situation because God himself is speaking through them. But for me, particularly these texts uh, heard together were a real guide uh, for me, at least, and hopefully students as we went through them a guide for us through, through pandemic uh, to yeah. remain hopeful in the midst of these, these challenges because yeah. uh, God is the God who has suffered. He has come near in his incarnation. Uh, he knows what it's like to be in our shoes and he has given us this great salvation that, mm -hmm. that leads us through. Yeah. So let me read. Uh, yeah. As a man who's longing for his home. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the test of our theology is is what we believe able to handle um, war. Is it able to handle suffering? Is it able to handle global crises? And so reading these texts together um, has helped me uh, in your work has helped me in, in the in these regard as well as not only taking a, a individual passage or a text from maybe first Peter or James James one like I would be uh, a tendency to do just take a phrase or, or a text, which can be powerful, but uh, that's amplified when you're thinking about not only one angle on suffering, but yeah. several angles um, and connected to several different themes uh, that show up. Yeah. I'd say one of my favorite things that, um, that you have helped me see more clearly is not just the themes that show up in the Catholic epistles, but the direction of those themes and the way that they're connected. So like the love command, uh, seeing that that wasn't just a repeated theme, but it was also connected to a similar intertextual connection to Leviticus 19 that James and First Peter are not just uh, using Leviticus 19, but also utilizing it in a similar way mm -hmm. uh, and then connecting it um, to a similar a similar step in the argument. Mm -hmm. um, so seeing those layered connections uh, was a really helpful part uh, that I've learned from your work. Uh, but also as this, if you know, sometimes people ask, what's the payoff of kind of a canonical approach to biblical studies? And I think this is one of those is you're, you're able to make some connections that are that would be there if you didn't think in this these uh, parameters, but allow you to kind of showcase that and, and see um, some of those in, in a in a fresh and exciting way. Yeah, it kind of pops off the page. It's almost in technicolor. Yeah. Like you said, they're there, but uh, this approach is, uh, it's like, a, oh, twisting the tone knob on your guitar. You're, you're, you're getting a different tone coming through there. Right. Uh, different frequencies are being in, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, highlighted there and you, and you see mm -hmm. in a different way, but you see okay. things that have always been there but you right. appreciate them. Yeah, that's helpful. I think something else is happening too between Jude, First uh, Peter, and Second Peter with the, the Genesis tradition, the, the idea of the angels being reserved for judgment and an interpretation of Noah there. There's some, like the, uh, like the Leviticus 19 uh, material, uh, I think something similar is going on with the Genesis material there mm. uh, between 1, 2, Peter, and Jude. So there's several things like that running yeah. through the yeah, that's good. If someone was, you know, just thinking more broadly, if someone was interested in doing uh, research in canon studies right now at the academic level, are there any uh, directions that jump out at you? Uh, one of the things that I 
uh, we encounter all the time in this area is that many of the discipline defining works and canon studies uh, focus on the Hebrew Bible or the relationship between the Testaments, you know, thinking about the the work of Brevard Childs or Christopher Seitz, uh, Old Testament uh, theology. Uh, but both of them have done studies in the New Testament. But what would you say are some of the, the unique challenges for a canonical approach to the New Testament or some shifts in method or just in general? Uh, what, what are some of the most exciting directions you see, um, you know, just in broad terms in canon studies in the New Testament? The difference between Old Testament and New Testament is significant here because of the time, you know, scale that we're talking about. So uh, Childs and Sites and others who uh, think canonically about the Old Testament, maybe Stephen Chapman at Duke is also someone there thinking in these ways. Uh, the editorial or redactional activity that we can see in the Old Testament that uh, plays into or is uh, associated with a kind of canonical interpretation uh, is is different in the Old Testament than the New. And I, I remember uh, chatting, I think actually you were a part of this chat. Uh, 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 Bob Yarborough was uh, challenging me saying, wait a second, you're talking about redaction in the New Testament. I don't see any redaction in the New Testament. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> he really yeah. pushed me on this. I thought, oh man, I need to be careful about how I'm speaking here. That was such an honor to interact with you and him in that context. Uh, but the, the the point there I'm making is that it, it's different in the New Testament. You have a much shorter time period, mm -hmm. fewer indications of clear editorial activity, the kind of editorial activity that might help you uh, see canonical development or shaping or association. And so that makes all the more acute the question that you were asking before. Is this something that Peter is intending uh, or is this something that's actually seen and highlighted in the reception process. So I think mm -hmm. that's a much more uh, acute kind of question to deal with and answer in the New Testament. So reception history becomes all the more uh, interesting and also problematic in the New mm -hmm. Testament. Because in the Old Testament, you can say, well, the prophets are part of the reception history of the Torah and you're within the canon and you've got whole, uh, you know, kind of conversations going on there. You have less of that right. in the New yeah. Um, so there are other methodological issues as well, but but part of the question you asked is uh, interesting research in canon studies, especially New Testament. I two things come to mind there. I'm um, I would love to see folks do research and and probe the area of how the canonical sub collections of the New Testament interact with each other. So namely, mm -hmm. why are the four Gospels first? Uh, how do they then interact with? Often what comes next is Acts and the Catholic Epistles. Um, and then maybe the two letter collections, Acts and the Catholic Epistles and Paul's letters that includes Hebrews in an early canonical uh, association. How are these bigger chunks related to each other? How are they functioning? Um, had a wonderful conversation a couple of months ago with Scott Hafeman, who was communicating some of his ideas about, you know, why Matthew is the first of the four gospels and mm -hmm. how it connects then to Malachi and, and parts of the Old Testament canonically, uh, mm -hmm. but then moving forward, how the Gospels uh, set a reader up, uh, but also uh, canonically set up uh, the Jesus story with the apostolic story that we see unfolding in Acts and the letter collections. So uh, more needs to be done there, I think. That's big synthetic work, so that's tough. That's someone right. who's putting yeah. their 
arms around all of these texts and and, and making uh, bigger association uh, comments there. But this has been done in the Old Testament. Again, I'm thinking of Stephen Chapman's work mm-hmm. with the Law and Prophets, uh, Torah and the Prophets. Uh, th- this is an interesting area. So- something totally selfish in the Catholic epistles. I'd love to see somebody ask the question, uh, why is James first? Uh, uh, folks have talked about that. Dave Meanhouse, for one, he's he's asked that question. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but uh, so ancient collections, um, Sherbinsky, I can't remember his first name. Sherbinsky wrote a, a book on Paul and uh, was uh, arguing this kind of thing that in ancient collections, even Plato's texts, um, uh, they're arranged in different logical orders. So chronological or alphabetical, but sometimes philosophical works were arranged such that the philosopher's uh, most comprehensive work or most introductory work is read first as in as a way of an introduction or a precis of the rest of the collection. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would love to see some research into why the different orders in the Catholic epistles, most of those orders start with James. Why is it that James is usually up front? Um, and and what theological role might James play for one who reads the Catholic epistles? Mm-hmm. Does it introduce certain things that you know need to be introduced? I kind of have a hunch that Jude is last for a reason. Mm-hmm. It ends with a clear doxology that pulls some of the themes of the Catholic epistles together. So anyway, that you know, selfishly, yeah. I'd love to see a PhD student take that up and you know tell me why. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's good because that's kind of uh, hits at both, you know, if you want to do this, uh, you know, canon studies is exciting, but also daunting uh, because yeah. you're uh, immediately working through historical, literary, and theological issues. Yeah. Um, Sometimes there's you, several books together that are usually treated apart. Yeah. 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 So big, big picture issues, but also case studies and individual texts and individual collections. So there's... There's there's much to be done and um, uh, but but still not as we've been talking about before some of this will be complementary to uh, other work that's already been established and right. um, some of it will be genuinely new or you know taking a different uh, set of instincts or questions orienting questions to some old yeah uh, uh, questions on that point uh, so I know of a couple PhD students who are chasing down some of these uh, questions. One that comes to mind is uh, Ben Castaneda, who's a PhD student at St. Andrews just now, and he's asking, he's bringing canonical insights subtly into the question of how James and First Peter especially uh, are influenced by the Jesus tradition. So there's an old question. How, mm-hmm. how is the Jesus tradition in the Synoptic Gospels especially? How do we see that showing up in James Bacham's done a lot of work in that historically critically um, but also how does it show up in first Peter uh, and he's he's looking at that old question through the angle at least subtly of a canonical uh, connection between right. James and first Peter so that's a case in point of yeah. exciting new new uh, ways of approaching old questions yeah well it's good well I want to respect your time but as as you're thinking like the broader the uh, the broader question of this discussion, we've kind of gotten into some of this already, but just if I'm a pastor or a, maybe a professor in a different discipline, uh, what encouragement would you give for 
digging into the Catholic epistles or canon studies more broadly, um, you know, how could this uh, this type of thinking, which is sometimes difficult, sometimes technical, uh, but still rewarding, um, where do you see this kind of impacting, you know, the churches, pastors or uh, re- readers within the church or the local academy? Yeah, Chad, and, and maybe you can correct the simplicity that I'm going to bring to answering that really good question. Uh, and I genuinely want to hear, you know, your response to this. But on one level, for me, this is just scripture interprets scripture. Uh, there's a deeply Christian concern that the Bible goes together and uh, canonical approach is just saying the Bible goes together and how these texts have traditionally been associated and arranged is part of how the Bible goes together. And uh, this is the the deep Christian instinct of reading scripture along with scripture. Mm-hmm. I'm not just going to read uh, you know, Galatians and Romans and think about faith and works. I'm also going to read James 2 and read them in concert with each other, right? Read them uh, oh, the illustration I've used in the past is the the illustration of a choir. Uh, the mm. basses and the tenors and the altos and sopranos aren't all singing the same note. They're singing in harmony, though. They're coordinated notes. And the New Testament, the whole of Scripture, is like this. Um, I think it's important to hear Paul's melody line, uh, but accompanied by the Catholic epistles. And, you know, you you've used an illustration of how the Catholic epistles all together might be a stronger voice to hear alongside mm-hmm. of Paul. And I think I use a different analogy for that, but I think you're right that that's uh, a little hard to hear James all alone next to Paul. But if we hear the Catholic epistles singing right. alongside Paul, you get, you get, you know, back and forth antiphony uh, yeah. and harmony. And, and so again, that sounds simplistic, but I think other pa- pastors and other uh, scholars and other disciplines, at least if we're thinking about our task in a Christian kind of way, we should be concerned about how the Bible goes together. And and really, this is more an invitation to say the uh, collection and association within the canon is a profound way of mm-hmm. how the Bible goes together, how this story is unfolding and how we uh, approach text. Yeah, there are the technical aspects of canon that you know then folks might investigate from there but i would hope that would be like an open door invitation Mm -hmm. Uh, and folks already know something about this though it's it's not foreign to them completely um so i think i think i'd at least say that about canon studies yeah i think that was very helpful i don't you know i don't think that was too simplistic at all i think that's uh really kind of strikes at the core of the value of uh, this this uh, approach to biblical studies. I, I think this is one of the reasons why, like in the biblical theology movement uh, among evangelicals, the grand storyline of the Bible uh, idea is so compelling for someone who has only read scattered stories. And then this idea that there's a uh, not only that God is at work in the world, but that he this uh, the scriptures are telling uh, this grand storyline that that we can fit. Uh, biblical text into that we can fit our lives into and so i think this area of study uh especially in relation to biblical theology is is just saying that they're the uh the groupings the uh collections the canonical context is you know at the very least uh, another way of showing the interconnectedness of scripture 
And, um, you know, I would want to say more than that, but, you know, just thinking about the way that we understand the grand storyline is also shaped by the way that these texts come together. But seeing the biblical theology and canon studies as as complementary um, avenues for grappling with, as, you, as you've mentioned, scripture, interpreting scripture, I think that's a helpful. And complementary, and I might even say mutually corrective in a sense, because as deeply influenced as I am uh, with the way of talking about scripture as a grand story. Uh, even the way you just said that, we can take scripture and fit it within that grand story. Yeah, I'm always worried that I, because my heart is a little idol factory, I can construct a story that's more my story or the story how I think it should go and then place scripture within it. Well, I don't want to lose that idea of the overarching story, but if I set canon as a way of getting at the interconnection of scripture alongside it, then the canonical insights can actually be mutually corrective to mm-hmm. any distortion in the story that I might introduce. And right. vice versa, I think the overarching story can be uh, mutually corrective to a canonical approach, or I mean, we might even say a redemptive historical approach that might fit in a storied approach. Uh, these aren't exclusive to each other. You just mentioned that they 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 complement each other, but they also, I would want to add, they can be mutually corrective of one another uh, when we, you know, so easily can uh, convince ourselves that we've uh, right. figured out the whole, that we've we've added a distortion to it unintentionally, and these different angles then can be corrective as well. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, coming on to talk about uh, your research and some of your insights into the uh, the canon of the New Testament and these these uh, beautiful letters. Um, so I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this work. It's helped me immensely uh, and also uh, taking the time today. Yeah, for sure. My, my privilege, Chad. Appreciate chatting with you today. <laughs>